Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a great episode with Pat McCarty and Bob Dykeman of Shadow Valley Outfitters. And we are going to be talking about the Arizona antelope and elk uh, draw deadline coming up here February 13th. Before I get to that, I want to thank you guys for your avid support of this podcast. Uh, I've had record numbers over the last three months continue to just break the the prior month's record and I just really appreciate all of your loyal support. Uh, I want to encourage you guys to follow along on uh, my Instagram account at jscottoutdoors to get up-to-date photos and videos of what we've got going on here. We're Dar and I are headed to Mexico here and, and pretty soon to do our coos deer hunts down there in Sonora, and uh, we're really excited to get down there. But I just want to thank you for all of your support. Uh, I want to encourage you to send an email if you have any questions or comments in regards to this podcast or something you want to know, I'll try and find it out for you. Uh, you can send the email to jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. And I just want to thank you guys. Uh, also, the sponsors have been super loyal to me, and I hear from them all the time how you guys are, are uh, loyal back and, and support them, and I appreciate that. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider, which actually, as of yesterday, just released their new uh, draw odds uh, in Arizona. So all of the draw odds have been recalculated and are on the Go Hunt Insider uh, website. And I want to encourage those that are not uh, Go Hunt Insider members to go to gohunt.com forward slash J Scott. And you can get, a, if you use the J Scott promo code signing up, you can get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop. Uh, gift card and then you can go on and you can check out all of the new updated draw odds these are the most accurate draw odds available on the market today Uh, and go hunt insider is a phenomenal resource for any western hunter i encourage you guys to go check it out Uh, i've been going through these odds and seeing how things have changed from last year and the year before uh, and there's some pretty interesting stuff I also want to thank Kuyu, Jason Harrison, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting uh, for making such phenomenal ultralight hunting products. And you can go to kuyu.com to support them. Also, the outdoorsmans.com, Outdoorsmans, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his crew. Uh, If you call in the 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code, that's going to save you a 10% discount. You can also use that promo code online as well. Uh, I encourage you to talk to those guys over at the Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority. And then Phonescope, phonescope phonescope.com. Use the J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all Phonescope uh, products, and they make the best digiscoping adapter. They can adapt any phone to any optic, and you can be taking photos and, and videos. Amazing quality, uh, especially with these new phones these days. It's just spectacular quality, and you can see a bunch of those on my Instagram account. Guys, thanks a lot for listening. Um, we've got a lot to go over here over the next month. I'm going to be uh, talking to and interviewing some of the best outfitters in the state of Arizona. And we're going to dive into every single unit, every single hunt, and try and get you guys as much information as possible. Let's get right to this episode with Pat and Bob. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I've got my friends with Shadow Valley Outfitters, Pat McCarty and Bob Dykeman. Guys, how you doing? We're doing good, Jay. How are you? Morning, Jay. Happy New Year. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, I'm looking forward to having you guys on the podcast. Uh, obviously, we've got the Arizona uh, elk and antelope regulations uh, have come out on the website. Uh, I haven't actually seen a hard copy of them yet, but I assume they're out uh, as well. And with the application season you know, kicking off, I wanted to make sure that I got you guys on here to discuss uh, elk and antelope 
um, coming up in the upcoming season. Our deadline is February 13th, uh, and you have to apply online. And then I believe the end of January, I, I, I don't know the exact date, maybe the 30th is the deadline for paper applications. Um, but I can't believe in this day and age anyone would even still do paper applications. Uh, so the real deadline, February 13th, um, guys, is there anything that's jumping out at you? Um, let's talk specifically elk right off the bat here. Is there anything that's jumping out at you in the regulations that, you know, is different or a new hunt or, you know, a shocker? Or is there anything that you've seen in there that, that uh, you agree with, don't agree with, you like, you don't like? Uh, what are you seeing out there? Well, well, Jay, you know, the first thing that jumps out at me is that muzzleloader hunt that's uh, in 7 West uh, before the archery hunt. Um, it jumps out, you know, that's new. They haven't done that in there uh, before, being before the archery hunt. Uh, and then the other thing that jumps out, and I know everybody probably has this on their mind, but the extreme lack of moisture throughout the state. Um, kind of, you know, curious how these long-term forecasts are, are going to end up before this deadline uh, to get put in. Um, it could really change things in Arizona for this next year. You know, last year we had such a, a wet year, and now we're looking down the barrel of the exact opposite. So um, those are two things that jump out at me right away. Pat, you know, you bring up a good point there. Um, for one, the moisture factor, and with having to apply in February, lots of times, you know, we think it's a good thing because you have a lot of time to find out that you've gotten drawn and, uh, you know, be able to plan and, and what have you. Um, and one of the challenges with it being, you know, a February deadline is there's so much that can happen between now and when the hunt starts. Um, it's really hard to kind of predict, but wouldn't you agree that going into application season, I mean, I can't remember a time when it was this dry. I mean, we, we always talk about Arizona, and we, you know, it, it seems that it doesn't matter what year it is, we're always talking about how dry it is because we live in an arid state, but this is, this is way different um, than years past. Can you guys speak a little bit to uh, how you feel this drought, condi body condition, you know, overall health, how is that um, going to weigh in, you think, uh, and to take it even a step further, if things just stay kind of average, let's just say from, from the deadline day forward, we just kind of stay average, what do you guys think is going to happen? Um, you know, I don't know. There's a... Uh... I don't know. There's the, the tags in, in Arizona are hard enough to get anyway, you know. Um, bulls are going to find water, whether it's, you know, dry or wet. Um, the feed is probably the biggest issue, but, shoot, I don't know, Jay. I don't, who knows what these bulls are going to do you know, and how, how good it's going to get. It seems like every year, like you said, you know, we, we run into these things where it's super dry, and then last year we had a super wet year. And every year, yeah, we're going to see – condition of the bulls change and their body size and whatnot but you know if it stays average the cows are going to be healthy um, if we can get a little bit of moisture through february march you know to to get the calving season started to get the cows healthy through the summer to where we can get to the monsoons i think we'll be okay those big bulls you know as well as anybody that they find feed they find water you know even on those dry years you look under, you know, some of the, that pinion juniper country, and there's green grass under it, you know. Um, so it's concerning, but, you know, Bob and I were just talking about this. Point guard is a beautiful thing because of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, for those of you listening that don't know what point guard is, you can check in the, in the applications. But in essence, you pay $5 uh, for every application. And if for some reason prior to your hunt starting, uh, you, you need to give the tag back. So let's say you draw a tag and let's say you go out and scout and can't, you know, the antler growth is way down or let's say you get sick or get injured or, or something comes up with work, you can actually give your tag back. Uh, you obviously have to eat the 
uh, amount of the tag price, uh, but you get your points and you get a point for that year. So it's a pretty slick deal. So with the point guard guys, are you thinking that even though it's dry, as hard as these tags are to come by, apply with the point guard and then try and get the tag and then just see how it shakes out? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I don't know. I think it kind of depends on on how many points you have. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that point guard deal is only good for one time per species, so you can't just abuse it. Um, right. You know, if you had a ton of points and we're going to draw, you know, say a nine tag or something, an early nine tag, I don't, I don't even know if I'd apply for it um, and just maybe just do bonus points. So, you know, later on down the road you do draw the tag and you break your leg, you can actually use the point guard instead of, you know, wasting it on a year that, you know, may or may not be real real good with for, for antlers. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a yeah, couple different ways to look at it. But, you know, with, with for sure. a few points or whatever and just trying to get lucky, I mean, might as well, but I think with a ton of points, I'd I'd be pretty hesitant to to, to burn them. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that uh, regard. Uh, back to your first uh, point that you were making, Pat. Uh, when you a couple things jump out at you, uh, Unit Seven West this year, September 14th through September 20th. Uh, there's a 25 tag muzzleloader hunt that's going to go in front of the archery uh, hunt, whereas I believe Unit 9 a couple years ago was the first uh, unit to do that where they put the muzzleloader hunt in front of the archers. And then I believe last year Unit 27 did the same thing where the, the firearm season went before and, you know, at first when it happened, I wasn't a big fan of it. I'm still not a huge fan of it, but I understand they're trying to give, you know, muzzleloader hunters uh, a little bit more opportunity in the quote, you know, quote unquote prime uh, part of the season. I think it does hurt the archery hunt in that unit. Uh, you know, when it seems like they're rotating it around fairly well, um, Pat, you have a little bit of, uh, and Bob, you can weigh in too, but I know Pat has a little bit of history um, in particular with Seven West. I remember a few years ago, Pat, there was a big bowl in Unit 9 that was a really wide bowl, and a bunch of the different outfitters up there had trail camera pictures of that bowl all summer long. And, um, you know, there was nicknames of Flair. There was nicknames of Wide Boy. I mean, it was, everybody had a different nickname, really cool-looking bull. Um, and I remember, and you can fill us in on the details of this, I remember, uh, I believe someone related to you, maybe your aunt or your cousin or something, Pat, had an archery tag in 7 West, and you told me, hey, Jay, uh, that bull moved to 7 West, and my aunt got a shot at that bull, and then take that to fruition, Pat, I, I believe that was a couple years ago, and then last season the same stinking bull was photographed in Unit 9, you know, by everybody with their trail cameras, and the stinking bull did the same thing. It went back to 7 West, you know, probably 20 miles or more uh, traveling and, and got himself shot on that, I believe, 7 West archery hunt. Um, are my details fuzzy or f fill us in on that? Yeah, no, um, that bull, that bull was awesome uh, to watch. You know, like, like you said, we had a lot of pictures. A lot of people had pictures of that bull and he was really, really neat. Um, and that bull, you know, talking about these early muzzleloader hunts, that bull was on our target list for that first unit nine muzzleloader hunt that went on before the archery. And we were in there and we were looking for that bull, looking for it and couldn't dig him up anywhere during that muzzleloader hunt. And uh, like you said, my aunt had drew the tag in 7 West and also a good friend of mine. And she had gotten a shot at the bull, and they knew it was big, but they didn't know how big. So then I cruised down after the muzzleloader hunt to help them out. And I'm sitting on a hill, and they said, well, the bull's bedded down in there. And, you know, sure enough, that big bull stood up and walked out of there. And from where he was photographed in 9 to the hill that we were on was 37 miles. And uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, and... He, he went back to that same hill again last year. We had a buddy in there that was hunting him, 
and he went back in there, and he ended up getting shot uh, just down below that hill. Um, it's just unbelievable how far that bull went, and I figured he was going to get into the hit on the road because there were so many bulls and cows moving across from that 7 West burn to the Unit 9 and back and forth. There were so many elk in there this year, and, uh, you know, somebody got lucky, and I don't know if it was lucky or just done good, but either way, they ended up killing him. Yeah, being in the right place at the right time. You know, it, and Pat, so if my memory serves me correct, that would have been the 2015 season. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, the, the first The first time when you guys had the Unit 9 muzzleloader. And then, so that bull evaded hunters all of 2015 and 16. So the, you know that he went back into 7 West in 16. You just know he did, and he didn't get shot. He went back in in 17 and got himself shot. My question to both of you would be, how much of that do you think is an anomaly or, well, it's a, it's a two-part question here. How much of that bull's behavior is a complete anomaly or do you feel like when bulls get big and get old, does it make them do that more or less? You know, uh, this is, uh, you know, it's so strange because who knows why an elk does, you know, whatever. I mean, they're definitely a creature of habit. But the thing that, uh, you know, I'm reminded of on this is this year in Unit 8 and last year in Unit 8. Last year during the late rifle hunt, we found a really big bull. Uh, Bob dug up a real big bull right before the hunt, and we pounded trying to kill this bull. We had a couple opportunities, just couldn't get it done. And then we went back in. We had archery hunters in Unit 8 this year, and so we went back into that same area, and that bull was within probably, you know, as a crow flies, a mile and a half from where we found him the first time. And he moved a little bit. We bumped him one day, the first, I don't know, maybe day two or three, we bumped him. But we pounded this bull. I mean, we chased this bull all over the place, several missed opportunities under 30 yards. Had, we actually hit the bull. We lost him for a day. But that bull would not leave that area. And I think, to be honest with you, I think when those big bulls get big like that, if they make it that far, they just feel comfortable and safe in an area to where, you know, they don't want to leave. If they have cows and they have feed and water, they don't want to leave. Um, and this bull... I mean, we had a ton of people watching this bull, and, you know, he just evaded us, and then he evaded us on the late art, uh, rifle hunt again this year. Um, he's, a, he's a stud, and, but he likes that spot. He, he's going to keep going there. So I think kind of brings it back to the moisture thing. If, if the bulls are comfortable through their summertime, they're going to go back to where they like to rut. So a bull like that has... Um, evaded you he's a holdover bull obviously um, you know you're going to be trying to find that bull this season uh, I assume he made it through the late season um, so when you have a line or a lead on a bull like that I mean how do you with your tactics moving forward how do you then try and catch up with the bull this next season what are some of the things that you guys you know, we'll focus on trying to find that bull. Just pound in that same country. Um, you know, I, I put in and drew a late archery tag in that unit to try and kill that bull specifically this year. And we hunted him on the archery hunt, you know, like Pat was saying, chased him all over the place. And then uh, he actually, he moved like, it's just a couple miles to where we he winters, but um, on that late archery hunt, I was looking for him, I don't know, five or six days after the strip there and never showed up, never showed up. And then just one day he was on the hill, um, right where he should have been, but never did get a opportunity to go kill him because I was having a kid the very next day. So <laughs> my wife probably <laughs> would have killed me had I gone and hunted that bull that day. But, um, and then yeah, hunted him on the late rifle and, and, uh, but, yeah, we'll just keep pounding those couple little little places. There's some glass and knobs, and, um, you know, unless he dies this winter or something, he'll, he'll show right back up there somewhere. Guys, why is um, – let's talk about Unit 8. Unit 8 is a very intriguing unit to me. Um, 
but it always seems like it's the red-headed buck two stepchild of, of units in that it never makes it into the upper echelon, you know, unit talk. It never makes it into the one, 23, nine, 10, you know, it never makes it into that conversation. But then with that being said, every once in a while, a giant bull will come out of there. What is it about unit eight that, you know, some of these, the, some of the biggest bulls in Arizona have come out of unit eight, but what makes it, you know, what keeps it from being that upper tier unit? I think, I think for the most part, it's just age class like anything else. And there's just too many tags in there. Um, a lot of those bulls, it's not managed. I don't believe like some of those other units that we're talking about. Um, it's more of an opportunity kind of hunt as the the game and fish sees it. And there's just bulls don't get, you know, they, they have to run the gauntlet with all those tags and they just can't get the age class that some of these other units, you know, can offer. Yeah, I mean, and it looks like there's like 500 late tags in there. Um, so it's just a function of, you know, a big one will slip through the cracks every now and then, but there's, you know, what, 250 archery tags in there. It just makes it tough for them to really grow up and get big, if that's your thought. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, a lot of those, the, the biggest bulls in that unit come from, you know, a couple pieces of country that, you know, they can kind of get some ages. They're just real thick, you know, the, the cedar jungles, you know, that are really, really difficult to hunt, whether it's, you know, a rifle or a bow. But, um yeah, there's just, there's so many tags. We were in there this last year on that late rifle, and it is, it is an absolute circus with the amount of people that are in there. It's, it's unbelievable, really. It's, it, it was a turnoff this year, big time for us. Yeah, I mean, anytime you get 500 of your closest friends, it, it can be a, a, a definite downer, uh, for sure on those late hunts. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of those units that habitat-wise, wouldn't you agree that Unit 8, you know, from high to low, it's got pretty much everything. I mean, it, it's probably one of the most diverse units in the state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can go, you know, high in the pines there, um, Williams and Garland Prairie and, and all that, and drop through all that transition area and then uh, down into the really the, the desert down on the, the Verde, you know. Um, it's an awesome unit, um, and you find elk in it, you know, top to bottom and, and east to west. But, um, yeah, there's just too many tags in it. And, and the way people are anymore, I think, you know, people are taking hunting a lot more serious than they did 10 years ago, um, you know, with optics and, and radios and long-range rifles and everything. It just, uh, you know, and, and, and then everybody's buddies coming out to help. It's, it's – uh, no matter the piece of country in there, there's there's people in it, and those uh, those bulls have a hard time getting old. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking right now. Uh, Go Hunt Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast, and I'm looking at the uh, chart here showing the early archery, and this is for non-residents. Um, it looks like Unit Eight uh, is with 13 points, so it takes 13 points to guarantee that tag. That, that's kind of surprising to me when you see a unit like a 7 West, um, you know, showing 15 points or a unit 1, you know, showing 16 points. Um, 13 points to guarantee a tag seems like a lot for, for a unit 8. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, you know, with a couple more years, like you said, you could go do unit 1. Um you know, with do you think it's one of those things, though, um, Bob, do you think it's one of those things that, like, since every now and then a big giant bull, like, like I'm talking about a 400-inch-plus that, you you know, every handful of years, do you think that's what keeps Unit 8, uh, you know, with as high a point total as it has, just because there is that chance for a giant? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely the potential in there every year. Um, you know, there was, there was a couple, I think it was 2011 maybe or something like that. There was like four bulls that got killed in there kind of 
really one piece of country that were all over 400. Um, there were just a couple of giants that year, um, and there there always is. But yeah, it's uh, I think there's a lot of elk, and uh, um, there's definitely you know the the potential for you know a big bull every single year, and you know keeps that um, keeps that demand up as a as a trophy unit. Yeah, uh, let's look here. I'm looking uh, unit eight. Also, at the same time, it has uh cow cow tags at the same time as far as you know competition in the field how does that play in with let's see there's 50 antler or let's see no that's not right <clears throat> what do we got here there yeah 50 antlerless uh tags as well so we've got literally 300 people uh rolling around in eight i mean Part of me wishes they'd just take these antlerless tags and do them at a completely different time. You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The antlerless tags, you know, I, I understand, you know, it's meant for opportunity and not everybody wants to go out there and chase bulls and they want to have the same opportunity. But when you have guys that are waiting, you know, 13 years to draw a tag and they do want to chase a big bull and you're making a stock in a bull and you get a cow hunter that comes in and bumps them because, you know, one reason or another, that that raises the tension and it raises the stakes and it really can take a hunt that is very enjoyable and turn it into the opposite of that. If, if you're continually getting bumped or if you're sitting water and people are walking in on the water, um, I wish they would do away with the cow hunt and, you know, move it to the, just put those tags into the muzzleloader hunt that they do in eight or one of the other rifle hunts. Um, the archery's hard enough for, you know, to, to kill a big bull and then you stack those cow hunters in there and it's even harder. Yeah. Guys, any, let's, let's talk about some of the other units that you guys like. Uh, you guys pick it and we'll just um, go into it. Uh, what, what else you guys like and out there, what other units do you like to guide it? All right. Well, you know, um, I used to hunt unit eight exclusively growing up as a kid and, and through my young adulthood, like, that was my deal. But I, because of the increase in tags and stuff, I left there a while ago, and I've basically focused on Unit 9 for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, and I have loved everything about that unit. Um, we've been fortunate enough to kill some really nice bulls in there. I was in there on the late rifle hunt that a lot of people can't stand that hunt. They think it's a miserable hunt, but we had a fantastic hunt. We... We were able to hunt giant bulls every day. Uh, you know, I mean, we saw bulls, and, and not every year's like that. Uh, you know, Unit 9 late rifle is a tough hunt, but we hunted big bulls every day, um, and we were able to, to kill a really nice bull on the last day. The thing with that hunt is you have to grind, and, you know, Bob says this a lot. You know, if you're prepared to grind it out, you're going to kill a big bull, and that's what it was. You know, every now and then you just need that little bit of luck to kill and we had none until the very last day. And, you know, we finally made it happen. We had missed shots and missed opportunities, but we were finally able to get it done. And so I really like that unit. You know, I love it on the early season. Um, and the late rifle, I prefer that. I prefer that unit over a lot of others that, you know, are a lot more glassable and whatnot. You can still kill good bulls on that hunt. You just got to put the work in. Pat, how much did it being dry this year play into the success of the hunt as far as, yes, it's a grind, but do you feel like on that specific hunt, talking about the Unit 9 late hunt, uh, how, much, how much of it being really dry actually played into your success as far as you were probably able to trail cam them up a little bit and get a little bit better sense of inventory? Talk a little bit about that. You know, it really... You know, to be honest with you, the bulls, they they were around water, but it, it didn't really affect them too much as being dry. You know, where we killed, we were a long ways away from any water, and we had like seven or eight bulls all in this one little pocket, and they never really seemed to, to move. You know, the bulls are tired after the rut. They're just trying to, you know, get up, feed, lay down, and save energy for the wintertime. Um, so the trail cameras, you know, they can be effective, but everybody has trail cameras. So around every water tank, you know, just like in the early season, there's seven or eight cameras and there's people checking them every morning at four o'clock. So they're getting in there early. They're pushing the bowls. 
so we just, you know, we hunted it like we would on any other year. We go back to the same areas where we find bulls, and, you know, for us, they happen to be in the same areas. You know, we had a couple bulls get shot out from under us. You know, someone just got in there a little bit before we did, but it was it was basically the same thing as any other year. We just had to, to grind and, you know, get lucky eventually to have the opportunity. Yeah, I'm... I hear you on that. I'm looking at the Gohan Insider odds on the Unit 9 late hunt, and they just, Gohan just yesterday updated their latest odds, and it shows that uh, eight points is a guarantee, 100% uh, draw in uh, Unit 9 on that late hunt. Uh, Pat, as far as terrain or vegetation, you know, are they on the cliff rows? Are they eating pinion nuts? Are they, you know, are they are they grazing? What exactly is there any, you know, without giving your spot away? Is there any one specific, you know, tip you can give people in hunting those late hunts to focus on, you know, a certain vegetation type or certain terrain or something that you know, hey, the bulls are going to be stacked in this area. Well, you know, I mean, it just depends on what's available to them and where most of the people are. You know, we were, you know, we were down in the basin early in the hunt, and there was 25 vehicles parked along the basin road. So within no time, those elk that were down there were pushed out of there, and they were moving on to other places. Um, but what we were finding is those big bulls, as soon as first light would come in, they were moving out of, out of their, their traditional feeding and bedding areas, and they were just getting to the thickest, nastiest portions. Um, and, you know, in Unit 9, that can be difficult because it, there's not a whole lot of glassing uh, opportunity. So what we were doing is we were spending a lot of time in areas that weren't, like, great glassing opportunities, but, you know, just working little fingers and whatnot, um, walking ridges and glassing back and forth on each side, just trying to dig those bulls up where they're, they're bedded down in thick stuff. Um, they have food around them to where they don't have to move a whole lot. Um, so that's the way, you know, we found success this year. Um, but every year it can be different up there. You don't want a super wet year. If there's, we didn't see any bulls um, up top, basically. You know, they were either out west or they were in, in the lower co uh, country. Um, and we didn't see any cows in any of the upper portion. You know, we ran into a lot of cow hunters that are like, where the heck are the cows? Uh, you know, they were all south. Um, so, you know, every year is different, but I think trail cameras do help to get you in, in the right direction as far as north, south, east, or west, but as far as hunting those, those bigger bulls, they don't move a lot, they don't water a lot, and you just got to gotta get in there and, and work really hard. A couple things that you bring up there. One is, we, you know, we've all kind of, you know, gotten into the quote-unquote long-range glassing. I know... Um, we, we all use big binoculars, but do you think in a sense that because we've gotten so accustomed to getting up on a high cone knob and being able to glass as much country and as far as you've seen, do you feel like a, a, a little bit of a tactic that's kind of been lost is the more of the kind of um, moving glass, you know, kind of like what you were saying, walking fingers and walking ridges, and instead of looking, you know, a mile to two to three miles, you're breaking that down, and, you know, you may be glassing 150 yards to, you know, 300 yards, but you're kind of moving and glassing as opposed to a big, giant, you know, look. Can you speak a little bit about that tactic that you're using, and and do you feel like it's a little bit of a lost art in in all of the long-range stuff that, that we all do and that we see, do you think that kind of just the poking around and, and glassing along has kind of been lost? Uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, growing up as a kid, hunting with my dad and my grandpa, that's pretty much all they did is get, they'd get on these fingers and they'd walk them and they'd use their 8 and their 10 power, and they were always successful. And then you know, as I grew up, I was like, oh, no, this is the way to do it. You've got to get up on a hill and look and find what you want to kill before you go kill it. And so, you know, I'm probably as guilty as anybody else. I love to do that. That's what I want to do, you know. Um, we find a lot of big animals doing that. But with that being said, when you get up on those hills and you don't find success in finding those animals with those great big looks, you have got to be able to adjust to that 
and go work those tight areas, those tight canyons and draws, and be able to, you know, just carry your 10 power. You know, I'll take my 10s and put them on a tripod and glass the other side of a ridge and, like say, 150, 200 yards. And all you're looking for is an ear flick or the turn of a horn or, you know, just something small like that. And, uh, you know, Bob can speak to the, the big glass um, as far as, you know, what he likes with that, and, and I'll let him do that. But, yeah, no, I think, yeah. I think you're right, though, Jay. I think it's a lost art of, of tracking and, and, and actual hunting, you know. Um, like just Pat was saying, I think everybody likes, you know, taking their COAs and BTXs and doctors and 15s or whatever they got and, and climbing up on these big giant knobs. But, you know, the, the art of actually getting in there and, and working a piece of country is, is definitely, uh, is, you know, kind of a thing of the past. Um, and it still can be very, very successful, and, and guys, you know, aren't quite doing it as much as they used to. Yeah, good good stuff. Um, Bob, I know you've been, you're, you're a long-range glassing, you're an optics connoisseur like myself, meaning you like to look through different big optics and big glass. I know you've used the doctors. I know you've used the COAs. I know you've used the BTX. My question is, and, and it goes to both of you as well, but what are you using now and why? Um, I'm still using the Koas. Um, we, bought a, we bought a pair of BTXs, and, and Pat's been running the BTXs. Um, I still really, really like my Koas. Um, it'll be pretty hard for me to get rid of them. And, and, I mean, I'll never get rid of them, but it'll be hard for me to switch. Um, I know they're, they're heavy Why? and they're full. Why? I, I just, they're, they're too comfortable for me. Um, I, I just really, really like them. Um, okay. I like the color. I like how bright they are. Um, you know, the only downside for me is, is that they're, you know, they're heavy and they're bulky. But I just take other crap out of my bag that, I don't have to have so. That's um, that's a that's a lie if I've ever heard it because I've seen your backpacks before. You don't take anything out of your backpack. I saw you one time in your backpack. You honestly looked like a homeless person out on the ridge. You had the backpack had to weigh a hundred pounds. No, that was just the colors in it. <laughs> um, um, but no, seriously, I, I mean, I try and and go as light as I can. Um, right. You know, just just because of those colors, really. Um, yeah, but the BTXs they they are awesome. Um, so compare compare the BTX and the Koa and, and Pat you weigh in as well. You you talk about uh, Bob. You talk about the color. Um, explain what you mean when you say the color. I mean I know what you mean, but explain the difference between the Swarovski BTX and the Koa when you're talking about color. What do you feel? Or what are you explain what you mean there? I think I think it's a, a personal preference to to most everybody out there with all the optics. Um, seems like everything's got a little bit different tint to it. Um, you know, I run the Zeiss um, the Zeiss rangefinders, the RFs or whatever as as my tens, um, and I I don't like looking through those Swaro you know EL rangefinders. They just have a I think it's like more of a yellow tint versus like a, a natural blue tint um but yeah i, I mean the, the koas i just i like them they're they're bright and the the color is right for my eyes you know um i know a lot of people are jumping off the koa bandwagon but i'm i'm still trying to hang on <laughs> you're still yeah. riding it hard and that's great um, that's great because wouldn't you agree that it's, I mean, you got to go with what you think makes you the best. In other words, right. you got to put in the starting lineup what you gravitate toward, towards and you're most comfortable with. Right, right. And, and you know, with all that being said, um, you know, I probably will end up doing the BTX just because of the weight um, and the bulk. Um, so what you're saying is there, there will be times when you're not as comfortable with the BTX, but because it's considerably lighter, 
you will give up some of that comfort of your own eyes to carry 10 pounds less or whatever it might be yeah. um, in certain situations. But, but uh, you know, situation in, situation out, if you had to choose, you're going to go with the COAs every time unless, unless you're talking about covering a lot of ground and you, you just, that weight factor alone eliminates the COAs. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, the, that's, I think, the biggest difference between those two, in, in my opinion, and, and my eyes and everything. Um, you know, the both great glass and everything, but the bulk and the weight of those BTXs is pretty phenomenal. But if I, you know, right now, you know, I mean, I, I love my Koas. I, I really do. I have a, mine are beat up, and, and I need to send them in to, to get touched up a little bit, but man, I love the dang things, and, and I have no problems, you know, hiking up every mountain around, you know, to, to glass, but um, but I am, you know, getting a little bit older. Got a kid, I don't get a hunt as much. <laughs> don't get a hike as much. I will say, um, I you know, I, I started long-range glassing with the doctor's, the 40, 40 power super wide angle, uh, then the Koas and the BTX. But before the BTX, I was using the twin Swarovski spotters. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Uh, the twin Swarovski spotters at seven and a half pounds with the um, the adapter or the I guess the jig from. Uh, Benny Wells, their Wells Manufacturing in, in Prescott, right there in you guys' hometown there. Um, and then the BTX came out, and granted, the BTX is lighter. I still, and the BTX quality, when you're looking through it, is fantastic. But, uh, you know, I'm headed down here in a few days, Coos Deer in Mexico. I'm going back to the, the twin spotters. Uh, and you know, I, I switched from the twins or from the Koas to the twin spotters for two reasons: the angle by piece and the weight. I felt like I was gaining a lot more by carrying a lighter set at seven and a half pounds than the Koas at thirteen plus the heavy tripod. But then the BTX came out, and it's even lighter. And I wish they would come out with a BTX that is straight and not angled. I just can't get comfortable glassing with an angled eyepiece. Now, I know the Koas are angled, and, and, you know, you're obviously used to the Koas, and you like that angled eyepiece, but that's where I'm at now. Is I wish the BTX was straight. Uh, because of that, I am actually switching back to my twin Swarovski spotters. Um, Pat, why don't you weigh in on, on what you're seeing? Yeah, <clears throat> before we got the BTX, I, was, I wasn't sure what I was going to stick with as far as big eyes go. Um, and so, you know, I tried the Koas, and I, they're just, they're not comfortable to me. Like, I just, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me personally, but I have a hard time looking through them and being consistent in how I'm glassing with it. Um, and then when the BTX came out, we got those, and I, I love them um, as far as a big eye goes. But I'll agree with you in the sense that it can be difficult looking down and trying to relocate an animal. So say you, you find a good bull and you want to throw the spotter on it. My spotter, I'm using the BTX with the 95, So when I, but I have a straight uh, eyepiece for the spotting scope portion of it. So when I switch over, it can be difficult to relocate those animals. And sometimes, you know, if you just see a horn or something quickly, you don't have a whole lot of time to spend trying to relocate that animal in the glass. So it can be a little bit of a pain, but as far as the big guys go, I really like them. And, you know, I plan on sticking with the BTX, but I don't know. I said I'd stick with the 15s, and, you know, just like everybody else, the new thing comes out, and i got to try it. i got to get my hands on it. Yeah, well, that's part of the fun of it as well. Uh, guys, okay, uh, we were talking about Unit 9 before, and, Pat, you were talking about the late hunt in Unit 9. Uh, any, it, it seems as though Unit 9 on an early, uh, when we're talking about the early season, when we're talking about archery and early rifle or muzzleloader, it seems as though Unit 9, you know, 
let's face it, the, the, the biggest bulls in Unit 9 are either on the park or on the res, and they bounce back and forth in the Unit 9, and then they're gone, and then they're, they're there, and then they're gone. And, and in essence, Unit 9 is Unit 9 because of the Grand Canyon National Park. But with that being said, you take some of those upper echelon bulls, it's just, in my opinion, it's just a, a pretty darn good, you know, 320 to 340, 350, you know, probably 320 to 340 type of unit, and it's good bugling. There's only 100 tags. But I feel like it gets a little bit overrated somewhat, meaning that there's probably only six, seven, eight, ten bulls, depending on the year, that, you know, come back and forth across from the, the, the park. And then what you're left with without those is just nice, solid bulls. I, I'm curious, whereas opposed to like a Unit 10, uh, there's not as much sanctuary with the Grand Canyon National Park or, or what have you, but Unit 10 actually has some big, nasty bulls. Um, and I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but in my mind, Unit 9 is a little bit overrated as far as a elk unit. And I think those 6, 7, 8, 10, you know, super top-end bulls give Unit 9 its allure or give it, you know, whatever one thinks is such a great unit. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I think you're, you you hit the nail on the head. And I think part of the problem with that now, and it's only getting worse in Unit 9, is social media and trail cameras because all summer long we're going to look at these big giant pictures of velvet bulls hitting a, a select few tanks, and it's going to get everybody excited, and there's going to be a lot of guys that go out there hunting, and they're looking for that, you know, that 375-plus bull. There's going to be a lot of guys that go home empty-handed when they could have killed really, really beautiful 350, 360, 340-type bulls. Um, and I think that's part of what you're talking about is being overrated because you will see you know, three, four bulls get killed uh, on the muzzleloader hunt or on the archery hunt that are really, really big bulls, 380, 380-plus bulls. And, you know, guys set their goal. They want to do that, and they end up passing up bulls or not taking, you know, a chance on a bull that in the last week that they would, they would definitely go shoot. Um, and just like any hunt, things change throughout the hunt. So I would agree that it's a little bit overrated. Bob? Yeah, no, I uh, I totally agree. I think there's, uh, you know, way better units out there as far as trophy potential for, call it the average guy that's not going to go put in a bunch of summer scouting and cameras and everything else and know kind of where those big bulls do live. Um, you know, for the guy that's just going to go hunt, you know, if he goes in with... <clears throat> Um, you know, realistic expectations, it'll be a fantastic hunt, you know. Um, you know, realistic expectations as in, you know, torching a, a 340 or better type bull, he's going to have an awesome hunt. But if that same guy goes into it, you know, with the expectations of of a, a 380 or better type bull and, and not going to hire a guide and, and kind of do it himself and, and not scout a whole bunch, he's, he's probably not going to have a very good time. Um, you know, he'll, he'll see a lot of bulls and stuff, but that, you know, that expectation of, of what social media and, and, you know, just big bulls has, you know, caused, you know, everybody to get a little crazy. Um, and he's probably not going to have a, a real great time up there. Um, but so in other words, so in other words, the hype guys going in all hyped up, but they, they're, they're, they don't have a good sense of reality. And, and yeah. halfway through the hunt, they're going, I thought I had a Unit 9 tag. Well, you do. Uh, you just don't realize which, you know, things have been, you know, overcooked, yeah. so to speak. And, and you got to realize that it's a grind. I mean, and, yeah. and, you know, someone from Idaho or something's listening to this podcast going, you Arizona boys, you don't know what a freaking grind is, you know. But when we've grown up in these best units, in the world right here in our backyard, you know, sometimes I think we can get a little jaded, but the reality is I think most people that have these tags, they really have no idea. Their expectations are so far out of whack. And I would say to take that a step further 
and not picking on non-residents at all. But I believe year in and year out, my communication with non-residents in units across the board for Arizona, their expectations are completely out of whack. They, they're, they they're think Arizona, they're out of control. And, and it's not really their fault, but, you know, I'll, I'll have people call me and they'll be like, hey, I, I drew a such and such tag. I'm like, oh, great. And he's like, you know, they'll be like, you know, do you think I can kill a 400? And I'll be like, I'm sorry. Did you just say, do you think I can kill a 400? Well, yeah. How about, do you think you can kill a 350? And they're like, huh? I drew, a, you know, 9, 10, 1, 3 feet, you know, whatever, 23. And I'll be like, buddy, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but, you know, why don't you start with killing a 350-plus bull as your expectations, not 400 inches. They'll be, you know, one, two, or three, depending on the year, bulls of that caliber killed in the whole state. And some years, there won't be one. I just, I think non-residents have an unrealistic expectation of actually how good Arizona is. I mean, we have, our game and fish does a phenomenal job of, of, of managing the resource. But let's make no mistake, in my opinion, our tag numbers have, we, we've given out too many tags to maintain that quality that we're known for. I'm curious you guys' thoughts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, to take that a little bit further is you get the same guy that, that comes down out here and he, you know, wants to kill a 380 bull. Um, but he doesn't know what a 380 bull really looks like. Um, he, he, you know, he sees all these pictures on social media and, and, you know, his buddy's neighbor's best friend's cousin or whatever drew the tag 10 years ago and killed a big bull or something. But you get that same guy that's never killed a big bull that wants to kill a, a 380 because of the hype. Um, and you call in a 320 bull, which is a nice bull and the dude's crapping down both legs wanting to kill it and you got to go yeah hey dude like you know don't don't kill that bull that's not anywhere close and you know he turns to you and goes hey that that's the biggest bull i've ever seen you know um yeah whereas if that guy doesn't have that expectations he torches that bull whether it's 320 350 whatever which a 350 bull is a big bull but um you know he has an awesome hunt he has that experience but it's that number that you know is he doesn't even know what the number means. He, he, he probably couldn't even score it if he wanted to, you know. But it's just this hyped-up number that, you know, everybody's telling him he's got he's to gotta hold out for a 380 or better bowl or, or depending on whatever tag, you know. Um, it's just, it can be really, really frustrating. Um, and that's kind of, you know. As a guide. Uh, or, yeah, as a guide, you know. And, and, yeah. and Pat and I are, are really, really, you know, brutally honest with people booking hunts with expectations um it's you know if a guy comes out and, and has got the right expectations you know if he's got a unit nine hunt and you know hey let's let's go hunt a 350 bull you know are we going to see bigger bulls probably um are we going to kill them we'll find out you know um you know seeing a bull a, a big bull and, and killing them are two totally different things um but you know if a guy comes out with the right expectations um, you know, he has a, he has a great hunt, you know, it's, it's the guys that come out with, you know, these, these exaggerated numbers that, man, they're probably going to go home, you know, pretty disappointed. Um, so that's, I think, you know, just kind of being honest with clients is, is the best way to go for, for us. For sure. For sure. Let's, let's talk about, let's bump over to unit 10. Um, and talk about, I don't know if you guys have been spending any time in Unit 10, um, your thoughts on 10. You know, Jay, um, really for us, we've just been doing antelope hunts in Unit 10. Um, you know, I think as far as the antelope hunts go, they're just like the elk hunts. They've stacked a ton of tags in there, and Unit 10 used to be a fantastic unit for antelope, and it still is a really good unit. You stand to go, uh, stand a chance to kill a really nice buck, but, uh, 
you know, I, I did notice that they've got some tag numbers down for antelope in there, but we have not spent a whole lot of time in there. I haven't hunted Unit 10 on uh, elk hunt since I used to, to guide for uh, Corey Pritchard and Chad Smith on some of the ranches in there, and that, that's a very special place. But uh, we've mainly focused on uh, 8, 7 West, 9, and uh, 23, and uh, we're, we're really pounding the, just the public land portions of those. Let's talk about 23. Um, what do you like about 23? Are you talking north or south? Uh, both. Um, they're both, you know, phenomenal. Um, it's just, it's cool country. Big, steep, nasty. You know, it takes takes a lot of lot of points, but it's probably, you know, probably arguably the best the best elk tag, um, best early archery tag best early rifle tag and, and best late rifle tag in the state. Um, you know, as far as bulls and, and yeah, terrain and, and everything, we, we really, really enjoy it. I think one of the things that, that allows 23 to be good is, you know, bordering the, the White Mountain Apache all along that east boundary. Um, you know, it's, it's somewhat like the situation in nine where you've got the Grand Canyon National Park and you've got a chance for some of those bulls to move back and forth. And, you know, the Indians do put some pressure on those elk, but, you know, the, the, you know, the Sibiqiu camp is so far away from that boundary line that a lot of those boundary bulls don't get hit too hard. Um, so it creates a place where those bulls can get a little bit older. Uh, and uh, 23 is, is certainly a neat unit. Um, guys, are there any mid-tier units or any units that we haven't spoke of that, that, that you guys want to make a mention or talk about at all? Um, you know, maybe a little like 7 East. Um, we hunted in there just a little bit this year um, on an early rifle guy. Um, killed a really nice bull in there but it can be it can be pretty dang good um we had another friend of ours that had had the tag and and he killed a nice bull and hunted a, a really big bull um but the, the i think the early archery in there and the the early rifle can be kind of overlooked um you know not as, as a mid-tier unit you know uh, with guys coming out with the you know the right expectations it could be you know a really good hunt what about you guys living right there in Prescott? Talk a little bit about the block unit. I know um, those are units that, you know, get the reputation of a big bull being around, but those are really, really tough hunts from my perspective. I've never even been in there, but just from the stories I've heard, the block for the wrong person can be a disaster. Yeah, uh, those hunts are a grind, and they're – they just mentally, they can take a toll. Yeah, you can go in there and you can, you can find a nice bull. You can find a nice bull, but you've got to be prepared to hunt hard. And there are, I, I'll guarantee there are days where you don't see an elk. Um, it, it's very, very low density numbers of elk. Um, and then there's pockets where there's a few more. Um, but it, it's difficult. And then the other issue with, with those units, that block unit, is private land. Um, it, it, it can be very difficult, and if you're not willing to pay uh, an access fee or go with a certain outfitter, then, you know, you're probably not going to have access to some really good uh, elk country. Um, but, you know, if a guy is looking for an opportunity, he just wants to go out and hunt, there are those hunts that last about a month long. Uh, it can be in any elk tag. And he can go out there and he can hunt and he have a good time, maybe have his family out there, a buddy. Um, but it's going to be tough. It, they're not easy units, you know. But occasionally, a big giant bull comes out of there. Let's bump over, unless you guys have, have anything to add on the elk, let's bump over and talk a little bit about antelope uh, and, you know, what your favorite units are out there for antelope and are there any anything that's changed or anything that jumps out of you on the antelope numbers or is there a specific hunt or something good, bad, or ugly um, that you see? Um, you know, I, I, I'm an antelope nut. I love it. And I, I personally, I love 19A, 19B, and 10. Um, but one unit that I think is overlooked, and there's two hunts. It's Unit 8, 
and they have two muzzleloader hunts that are in there. And one is before the uh, archery elk hunt. It's the first week of September. And then there's one that's the week following. Actually, I think it's two weeks after the archery elk hunt. And if you're, if you're able to, you know, I don't want to see somebody apply for that hunt and, and apply for that second muzzleloader tag. Because by that point, you know, most of those good bucks are shot out of there. But that early muzzleloader hunt for Unit 8 on the, arch, or on the antelope hunt is a really, really good hunt. And you, you can kill a nice buck, you know. Um, you, you should set a goal of around 80 inches. Uh, it can be overlooked, but you can find better bucks in there. Um, but me personally, with my tag and my application, uh, I go with 19A and 19B first, and then I go with Unit 10. Um, when, when you're building points and once you have a lot of points. But if you got someone that's, you know, in that middle range of points, that unit eight hunts good. Um, I know a lot of guys, you know, 5B, um, I have not hunted that unit a whole lot, but I know that there's big, big bucks over there. Bob? Uh, you know, I, to be honest, I don't do a whole lot of antelope. Kind of hand the, the hand, antelope yeah. to Pat. Um, I kind of stick with deer that time of year, um, deer, and then go right into elk. So that's kind of our uh, our antelope antelope guru here. Right on. Uh, speaking of deer, um, pardon me for coughing and sneezing and doing all that kind of stuff. I got the Christmas crud, but I'm just getting over it. Uh, talking about deer, you mentioned deer. You are a deer nut. Um, how was it? Did you go up on the strip this year, and how was it up there? Um, it was good. It was uh, it was really good. I actually drew I drew the uh, the 13B archery tag myself this year, um, and was able to go up there with a bunch of bunch of family and friends and and killed a nice buck. Um, and then we had some some rifle hunters, and and a good friend of mine had the the, the rifle hunt too. He killed a, a great big deer and. Had a couple of clients kill some some really good bucks, and it was a it was a it was a great hunt. There was a, a lot of good deer up there this year. Um, you know, we we have a, a really good team of guys that that go up and have a good camp, and everybody has fun and and kill some kill some really nice deer. Do you feel like the quality and up there on the strip is is maintaining, or do you feel like it's dropping off, or is it year to year? You know, I think it's maintaining for sure. Um, 13B especially. Um, you know, it just they're it's just uh, you know older age class, and I think you know I'd like to see less less tags, but you know as long as they're not going to keep you know increase them, I think we're think we're all right. But you know, for the last five or six years, 13A has been you know really bad. Um, but I, you know, and I didn't even step foot in 13A this year for that reason, but, you know, they actually killed some really nice deer out of 13A. So it was actually, uh, it was good to see 13A rebound a little bit this year. Good stuff, guys. Um, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. Uh, you know, you guys coming on and spending time with us here. I'm just curious if you guys have any closing thoughts on anything uh, related and want to give you guys also a chance to let the listeners know where they can find you and follow and and, uh, get a hold of you. So I'll I'll, I'll let you both hit on that. You know, I think think my advice for for guys this year, um, especially guys looking to book with an outfitter, whether that is us or or you or, or anybody else in the state, what I try and tell guys is to look for your outfitter, you know, call around, check references, um, and, and get your outfitter's advice on where to apply. Um, you know, you're going to find a guy that, you know, you really want to hunt with and you hit it off on the phone and, and maybe meet, in, you know, in person or whatever, and you really want to hunt with him, but then you don't take his advice or anything or even talk to him before the draw and you end up drawing some, you know, whatever unit, and he doesn't hunt it, um, you know. And I, I think this year, especially with, you know, if you do have a lot of points, um, you know, you got you definitely have to buy the point guard, um, and then, you know, maybe even, you know, talk to some of these guys and, and uh, 
get their advice on whether to even burn points or not. Um, I think it's something that, you know, needs to be addressed, and I think there's going to be a lot of people that wait until the very last minute this year um, in February to see what, you know, January moisture looks like. But um, that's my advice to guys, and it has been for a long time, is, is find your outfitter first before you before you apply and uh, and get their advice. Yeah, yeah I think I, that's – go ahead, Pat. Yeah, I would just agree with Bob. And, you know, this is pretty a broad stroke as far as the podcast goes, as far as information and what we're talking about. And, you know, if someone does want to get a hold of us, we can go into more depth and, and have a little bit com- better conversation and, you know, let them know where they're sitting with points and what their expectations should be uh, for drawing a tag with, the, you know, whatever number of points that they have. And then, you know, try to have realistic expectations for your hunt, whether it's elk, deer, antelope, sheep, um, whatever it is, you know, that have realistic expectations. For sure. Shadow Valley Outfitters uh, on Instagram, uh, at Shadow Valley Outfitters. How else can guys get a hold of you? Uh, you know, they can go to our website, shadowvalleyoutfitters.com, and then they can also go uh, through Facebook, uh, and they can reach us. You know, one of those three ways work real well. That sounds great. Also, I'll link it up in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, guys, uh, wish you well. I know you're headed to Mexico as well as I am here soon. Uh, uh, have fun. Enjoy it. Mexico is a real special place, uh, something everybody, anyone that hunts should enjoy Mexico. Mexico is a phenomenal place to go uh, look for deer. And um, I really appreciate you guys spending time, uh, admire what you guys do, and um, appreciate your friendship. Uh, So uh, God bless until I talk to you guys next time. Uh, Look forward to following you on Instagram, and um, just uh, uh, thanks for sharing with us here. Thanks, Jay. We really appreciate you having us on. Yep. Thanks, Jay. Have a good one. All right, guys. Happy New Year. Yep. Happy New Year to you, too. Okay, bye.